Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. We come now to the last section where we have Daniel's actual interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now let's begin reading at verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, Because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it. Just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay." And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation sure. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. 
Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So this is an amazing chapter. It's a very important chapter in the Word of God. And we want to look at it carefully. Daniel is going to tell Nebuchadnezzar what the statue meant. What the different metals that this statue was composed of meant. Really what God is doing here is he is unfolding the future to Nebuchadnezzar. And thus to the people of God, to the church, to Israel, who would have his word and have this book, the book of Daniel, to refer to. So let's look, first of all, verses 36 to 43. The statue represents these four kingdoms. They're named the second kingdom, then the third, then the fourth. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar is the first since it begins with him. So he's number one. These are the world empires that have ruled the ancient world. And most of the commentators are in in agreement as to what they stand for. There have been some who have a little different idea, a little different order to them, but I'm following the standard understanding, which makes complete since historically that these are the kingdoms that are revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. So first of all, Nebuchadnezzar, he is the head of gold. It's interesting that he, it begins with the Babylonian, so the first kingdom is the present one that Daniel is living in, the Babylonian kingdom. We're going to be looking at the map of each of the kingdoms, so you get an idea of the land that was involved, where these kingdoms, how far they extended. Actually, this is a much smaller kingdom than the ones that follow, but here you can get an idea of the Babylonian kingdom. So for reference, here's Israel right in here. So it extends east. He's over into the Mesopotamia, into Iran area. This is, uh, and even comes over into part of Egypt. This would be uh, the area of present-day Turkey. So this is a general idea of where Nebuchadnezzar's rule extended. And all the people that lived in that area, they, they were under his rule, including Judea. It's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar is compared to gold here. This is not by accident. Apparently his kingdom was known for its great wealth. This comes out in Isaiah 13 in a passage that deals with the judgment of Babylon, chapters 13 and 14 of Isaiah. And it says in verse 17, And 19 of chapter 13, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. In other words, uh, the Medes are going to come and be uh, 
the adversary of Babylon, coming in the next kingdom, they're not motivated by the wealth of Babylon. They don't care anything about the silver or the gold. So it's interesting, it makes that, that uh, detail. And it goes on to say, And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. So Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. Notice how Daniel speaks of him as the king of kings. To whom the God of heaven has given this kingdom. So now Nebuchadnezzar has his first introduction to the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. It's right here. Daniel is there as a witness in Babylon for the true and the living God. And he's going to make Nebuchadnezzar very much aware of the true God. But he acknowledges here that it's God's sovereign authority over all the world that has given to Nebuchadnezzar his sovereignty. It's an important truth. Nebuchadnezzar, it takes him some time to learn this. He's not going to learn it until chapter 4. Who really is in charge of things? Now the next kingdom, you'll notice... It's very brief what it says of it. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And then it goes right on to the third kingdom. So the next part of the image, the statue, is the chest and the arms, which in Nebuchadnezzar's dream was made of silver. So it has a head of gold, and then this part is silver. So there's a decreasing value in the metals as we go down the image. And here it comes right out. The kingdom is inferior to you. Which kingdom is this? Well, this is the kingdom that follows the Babylonian kingdom. This is the kingdom known as the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Or the Medo-Persian Empire, as some like to call it. The Medes were in the northern part of Iran, northwest part of Iran. And they actually went to war with the Persians. And Cyrus the Great, the great Cyrus of Persia, who we're going to read of in the book of Daniel, he's actually mentioned. And he's also mentioned in, by the prophet Isaiah three or four times before he was born. A couple hundred years before he ever came under the history of the world, he is named by God, Cyrus, my servant. So Cyrus defeated the last king of the Medes, and he merged the two kingdoms, Cyrus did, the Medes in the north and with his kingdom further south, the Persian kingdom. They were never united, they there was tension and struggle between these two for supremacy during the time of the Medo-Persian Empire. But they're together in the book of Daniel. We're going to read at the end of chapter 5. When the Babylonian kingdom is finally defeated, it is defeated by the Medes and the Persians. So it, it combines them there. That's Daniel 5.28. 
And then in the 6th chapter, we have three references to the law of the Medes and the Persians. The law of the Medes and the Persians. The, the law could not change. That's almost has become a, a coined phrase for a law that cannot be changed or something of that nature. They say, you know, it's according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. Once the law, the edict went forth, that was it. Couldn't reverse it. So that's the second kingdom, is that of the Medes and the Persians. Here, here's a, you see how far the Medo-Persian Empire extends to the east, way beyond the Babylonian Empire, and touches upon Africa. So here is the northern part of Africa where Egypt is, and then Arabia is not involved in that, but it's very extensive. Here, the Medo-Persian Empire. Well, it's getting bigger. These empires are growing. Now, the third kingdom that arises is the kingdom of bronze. The statue is bronze on the, the where the stomach is and the thighs. Now, everybody knows it's a fact of history that Alexander the Great, the great Grecian general and conqueror, conquered the Persian Empire in 334 B.C. So this third kingdom is the kingdom of the Greeks. It's the kingdom led by Alexander the Great. And his kingdom got was even more extensive. In fact, it covered, he went into Asia, he went into Europe, he was in Africa, and he commanded that uh, people call him the king of the world, because it's even noted here concerning the third kingdom, which shall rule over all the earth. Another detail, because his kingdom was even more extensive than that of the Persian Empire. So this is this is Alexander's empire. Pretty extensive. It's it's also not coincidental that Alexander's empire is compared to bronze because the Greeks were famous for their bronze armor. In fact, there was a phrase, a saying of the Greeks, that they were the brazen-coated Greeks. So there's a connection there between bronze and Alexander's empire. Now, number four. The fourth empire, there's more detail of the fourth than any of the others. And we know what empire this is. And the reason why we know it's the Roman Empire is because it is the kingdom that is in power when the fifth kingdom comes in the form of a stone that hits the image. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was introduced to the world through the advent of Jesus Christ during the Roman Empire. So the fourth kingdom is described in detail, and we want to look at it here. 
Notice the first thing that's said about it is that it is strong as iron. It's got legs of iron. Well, iron is not nearly as valuable as the previous metals, but it is the strongest of the metals. Why do you think the Roman Empire was compared to iron? Well, that's an easy one because it says here that it breaks, it shatters, and it crushes opposition. This is speaking about the military might of Rome. Through most of its history, it was the envy of the ancient world, Rome's military. This is how it conquered. So the legs of iron turn into feet that have a mixture of clay and iron. So there's three things that Daniel says about the fact that it has feet and toes of this mixture, which apparently is very important to what God is communicating here about the image and about the future and about this empire in particular. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the first thing that is being brought to our attention from that detail is that it shall be a divided kingdom. Now, there's actually three things that are represented here by this mixture of clay and iron. But the fact that there's this kind of separation between the materials, this is pointing to the fact that the Roman Empire is going to be a divided kingdom. Now, there's different ways to look at that. This is one of the weaknesses of the Roman Empire, one of many that led to its downfall was the fact of the divisions, because it involved so many different peoples. Not all those people shared the same culture and the same beliefs. There were barbarians that were part of that, as well as sophisticated and cultured peoples. And trying to bring them together and unify them was an impossible task. Rome did its best by its road system that crisscrossed its, its territory, making travel easy. But it was a divided kingdom, and it really came out during the reign of Emperor Diocletian. Now, what you need to know about him, he was the worst persecutor of Christianity, Diocletian, 3rd century A.D., What Diocletian did as the emperor is he split the Roman Empire in half between the east and the west. The west was centered in Milan. We think it would be Rome, but they changed it later to Milan. And the east was in present-day Istanbul or old Constantinople. Over in Turkey is where the eastern part of the empire. They started out good together, working together. But within a short time, it, it became clear that the, they could not unify, they could not work together, these two factions of the Roman Empire. And the West fell first. It weakened over time. The Western part of the empire fell by the 5th century A.D. The Eastern, much stronger, went on for another thousand years to the 15th century. 
So it was a divided empire. Now another detail that comes out. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it. Just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. So the fact that it's divided and couldn't be unified, this adds to its fragility, its vulnerability, its instability. And so although it's a, it's a iron-clad kingdom in one sense by its great military, Yet there is an underlying inherent weakness in this kingdom of Rome. The inherent weakness is attributed to political instability, its moral decadence, economic deterioration. There are a lot of causes for it. This, is, this, by the way, is a vast subject of the fall of the Roman Empire. As I was trying to... in learn myself some more about this. Uh, there, there's just a lot of information. The famous work is by the uh, 18th century British historian Edward Gibbon. Several volumes he wrote on the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire. So it's got this inherent weakness represented, it's beautifully represented by feet of clay and iron. I mean, All the weight of this image is resting on feet that have this brittle nature because it's a mixture between these two things. And they don't coalesce. They don't really mix. And that's going to be brought out in the third thing that is said. Notice, and as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, they will mix with one another in marriage... But they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. So this is adding to the the idea that the kingdom is divided. And they're trying to unify it. They're trying to bring it together, perhaps by different means, encouraging marriage among people and all other attempts at unification. And it, it's like trying to mix clay with iron. In other words, it's, it's impossible for the Roman Empire to be unified. So it's, it's weak. It's a weak empire because of that. So that, that's the presentation of the image. So you see how extensive Rome ruled. This is Great Britain. Rome even went that far in its rule. See, it's all the countries around. This is North Africa, but it completely encircles the Mediterranean world, coming clear over to Spain. This was a huge territory to rule and to unify. It was great. Rome did it by its great military. It is an iron 
kingdom that crushes, I mean, there's violence in that, devastating, irresistible power. That was, that was Rome's army. So now it completely changes. Out of the blue comes this stone that is cut out of a mountain without hands. It's, it emphasizes it's cut out of a mountain without hands. In other words, it's a rock that's quarried from a mountain. But no man is involved in this. This is not a human kingdom. This is called by Daniel, in the days of those kings, in other words, the kings of Rome, the fourth kingdom, it's in the days of the fourth kingdom. Now I'm going to mention here in a moment the fact that the image is one and the whole thing topples over. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So here comes the kingdom of God intruding into our world with devastation to this image, this statue. And it hits it at the feet. Notice he emphasizes it twice. Daniel says that it breaks it in pieces. He sets up a kingdom that will never be destroyed in contrast now to the statue that is completely destroyed. And then he says, Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. That's an interesting thought, because what Daniel is telling him, because all the kingdoms of men, they change. The kings change. The subjects change. The territory that they rule changes. And it's like these kingdoms, they just pass from one to the other. This is why the image is one that represents these four successive world powers. Yes, the name changes. The Babylonians ruled this one, and the Medes and the Persians this one, and Greece this one, and the Romans this one. But really, there's a unity between them in that they're just really perpetuating the same worldly principle that man rules with an iron fist, the others, it's his insatiable lust for power and control over other people. That's what drives these kingdoms. What other reason would man have to want to rule over other people? So the image is one. So when he hits the kingdom at the feet and, and topples it so that the whole thing comes crashing down, he's saying all the worldly kingdoms of this represented in this statue, they come to an abrupt end. They're going to be destroyed by the kingdom of God. Now, it would seem like there's violence in that. The stone hits the image, but we're going to see in a minute it's not that kind of violence at all. That's not how the kingdom of God advances in the world. Quite the opposite. Now the contrast is in two senses. I mentioned the one already, the stone that's cut without hands. It's a, of a divine origin, the kingdom of God. 
Remember how clearly that comes out when Jesus is before Pontius Pilate in John 18. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. There you have it. It's the stone quarried from a mountain cut without human hands. Its origin is heaven. And so that's one of the terms used in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. Which is the same as to say the kingdom of God, because heaven was a substitute for God in a sense. You could say the kingdom of heaven, but you meant the kingdom of God. That's John 18.36, by the way. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would be fighting. They would have swords. They would not allow me to be standing here before you, the Roman governor. But secondly, the second detail that comes out here is the growth of this kingdom from a stone to the detail when Daniel is recounting what the dream was. Remember what happened to the stone? It grew into a great mountain that filled the whole earth. So that's that's the beautiful metaphor that Jesus himself explained by his parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13 when he spoke about the, the the mustard seed that grows into a great tree And all the birds of the air, they flock to it, and they are in the branches of this tree. And then he went right on to make the next one about the leaven. The leaven that leavens the whole lump. The secret growth of his kingdom. You don't see leaven permeating dough. That's a hidden thing from human eyes. We don't see that. So, on the one hand, the uh, mustard seed is the outward growth of the kingdom. You can just see this little thing that becomes a great tree, the smallest of seeds. It has a small beginning, but becomes great. The stone becomes a great mountain. In Edward Gibbon's book on the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, one of the reasons for the fall of Rome, not entirely, but contribute to it, was the spread of Christianity. In fact, it's connected very close to it. It dovetails with the spread of the Christian faith. As the gospel went into the Roman Empire, people were saved, churches were planted, the knowledge of Christ grew in the earth. What happened? The moral values of Rome changed. It displaced the religions of Rome, which were polytheistic. They wanted to include even the worship of the emperor as one of the gods. Well, the Christian faith totally undid that. Turned that on its head. The focus was on now a sole deity. The God of the Bible and the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the map that we just saw of the Roman Empire? It encircled the Mediterranean. This is, represents the Christian faith through the whole empire. So there's a definite connection there. I believe he was absolutely right. This 
spread of the gospel was the undoing, in part, of Rome's rule over the earth. When we went through 1 Corinthians 15 some time ago, looking at the great doctrine of resurrection, you remember we came to this section of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. We spent some time on it because it's talking about the kingdom of God. It's a very important section, but I want to reread Paul's words here. Correlate what he says here with what we're talking about right now. Paul says, and then comes the end, that is, at the coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God. There's an interesting phraseology. He's talking about Jesus Christ offering up the kingdom that he was in charge of as the Messiah. We're living in the kingdom that is ruled by the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But this is the kingdom of the mediator. And he delivers up the kingdom back to God the Father. After destroying, this is language of Paul, after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is the kingdom we're living in. This is what is happening presently with the kingdom of God. It is defeating and conquering all the authorities, every power that stands in its way that resists his power and authority will be put down. So the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is growing and advancing in the earth. Daniel then concludes by saying, that the great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. So it's all, it's all prophetic. He's revealing the future to Nebuchadnezzar. The dream is certain and his interpretation is sure. Now, thirdly, let's look at Nebuchadnezzar's response to Daniel, which is it's worship. Now, there are some who find, find a lot of fault with Daniel here that he accepted this without saying something, without protesting. This is an amazing sight when you consider King Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. This, this is a man who was an absolute monarch, a great king, the most mentioned. Gentile king in the Bible, 90 times the Bible mentions Nebuchadnezzar. He fell on his feet before Daniel. This is, this is quite a scene. This is an amazing thing. That the king is falling on his face before his servant. You know, Isaiah 49 
Verse 23, with their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you. And that's speaking about kings and queens bowing down to Israel, the Gentiles. Here's an actual example of that. So Daniel, he allows him to do this. He pays homage to Daniel. He commands that an offering be made to him. Then the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods. Notice, your God. So he's not, he's not Nebuchadnezzar's God yet. But he does see now the God of the Bible in quite a different light. He's been introduced to him and he realizes he's, he's exalted above the other deities. He hadn't come across a deity like this. He, he's, I have to admit, he's, he's, the, he's greater than anything I'm familiar with. He is the revealer of secrets, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. The mystery of his dream. First of all, just to tell him what he dreamed was was an amazing thing, and then to know what it meant adds to that. And then he gave Daniel the... He awarded him honors, gifts. He made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And the chief prefect, or like the president, of the wise men. Make note of that. Because here, this the this, this scene actually for future rivalry in chapter 6 is set up right here with that. This creates a lot of jealousy among the wise men. So at the first opportunity they get, they want to get rid of Daniel, and that's why he goes into the lion's den in the sixth chapter. It's due to them. So they didn't like that this foreigner, especially this Jew, would be given authority over them. But Nebuchadnezzar made this. And then Daniel takes advantage of the situation since he's exalted. And he's going to say, hey, how about for my three friends? Elevating them as well. So they're also promoted. And that is going to set the scene, actually, their promotion for what the next chapter has. And why they come into focus in the view of the others that know about them, that they're not worshiping the image, that the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up in the third chapter. So there we have Nebuchadnezzar's dream unfolded to us. A couple of things I want to underscore again. History... History is following God's plan. God has a plan, and history follows that plan, because here we have a prophecy of the future. And the future of worldly kingdoms falls out exactly like Nebuchadnezzar's dream. These four great kingdoms... And this is what Bible prophecy is. Bible prophecy is making known history before it occurs. It's very simple. 
That's what prophecy is. And nobody knows these things except God. He knows the future. He knows what the future holds because it's his plan. He knows the details and he can unfold it. And wherever the Bible does this, it's 100% accurate. This was one of the tests, whether a person was a true prophet of God. Were they 100% accurate in their prediction? If they were flawed at any point, they were considered a false prophet. And Israel was to do away with such people. The worst penalty was to be executed upon them for false false prophesying. That's according to the law of Moses. It's the way it went. Now here's another thing that I think we need to think about. So although the circumstances, namely like these world kingdoms and present day circumstances as well, the past as well as the present, Most of the time it appears that the godless are really ruling and they're having their way in the world. It appears like that now, and it appeared like that to the people that lived in these kingdoms. But what this reveals to us is that God has the last say, and he is going to overturn all of these kingdoms. So in the end, God is the one who prevails. And his kingdom and his people prevail with him. So this is why Christians need to be optimistic. We should never lose hope. We should not let circumstances and the way things appear, things are not as they appear in reality. We need to see behind the scenes. And this is one of the beauties of having a passage like this because it lifts up the veil and gives us a peek into what God is doing in the world and shows us that he's the one who is ruling and reigning. Now I said a moment ago that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who brought the kingdom and he established the kingdom with his coming. Do we all realize that? When Mark records the ministry of Jesus, Mark chapter 1, the first thing he records Jesus is saying is repent. The king, he announced the good news, and that good news is repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. The first message. First thing. So he brought the kingdom. So this stone has fallen. This stone has hit the image with the advent of Jesus. He didn't hope to bring a kingdom that now has been put off for some time and it's going to be reintroduced in the future. No, the kingdom came with him. How does this kingdom advance in the world from a stone to a great mountain? I'd like to ask that question and conclude on, with, with, with these thoughts about that. Because that's an important one to ask. If you take 
the religion of Islam, for example, one of the one of the ways Islam has advanced in the world has been by force. Physical force. You convert to Islam or we're going to kill you. Well, has that ever been the message? Is that how Paul spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire in his ministry? How did Paul spread the gospel? It was by preaching. He didn't threaten anybody with physical violence, though in the message there is the threat of judgment if you don't submit to Christ. But the way the kingdom of God advances in the earth, it's very clearly announced by Jesus in that dialogue he had with Pilate. After telling Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, Pilate then said, you are a king then? And the Lord Jesus Christ said essentially, yes, you say that I am a king. And for this reason, I, was, I came into this world and was born, that I may bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. This, he is telling us how his kingdom grows. What his kingdom really is composed of. It doesn't involve physical violence. It's bearing witness to the truth. This is how he conquers hearts. This is how he overcomes man's rebellion. It's by the presentation of the truth of Jesus Christ to people that wins them. And brings them to faith. This is how the kingdom advances from a stone to a great mountain. This is how the leaven permeates the whole lump. Or the mustard seed grows into a great tree. Paul brought it out in his second letter to the Corinthians when he said, Catch it now in this context. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. Paul was not fighting physical battles with people. He didn't use a sword, didn't use any weapons to advance the kingdom. Yeah, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but they're spiritual. And then he goes on to explain how it's tearing down arguments. Winning, winning arguments, pointing out the folly of belief systems, that's all done verbally. It's getting into the thought process of people, turning their thoughts in another direction, and the Holy Spirit uses this to bring about conversion when it's in the context of the Word of God. The Word of God brings people to faith. So we saw in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.